Church. Good morning, my name is Chris. I'm one of the leaders here at Metro Life Church, one of the pastors here. Uh, I look forward to meeting you. If I haven't had the opportunity to, my wife and I will meet you in the lobby afterwards. But uh, today is a full day. We have a belong class for those who are interested in being a member here at Metro Life Church. That's going to be immediately after the service in one of our rooms over to this hallway. Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity to get to know more about who we are as a church, learn how you can join our technical teams and help with these types of moments. Uh, also want to let you know about Light Up Metro Life Church. It, it's a night not just to illuminate the church, but to lighten our spirits heading into the holidays. And we have some new entertainment this year uh, that we're very excited about, uh, some fun moments. So like, for example, if, if you're here this morning and you were here a little bit early or you're just excited that falling back means that I get to preach for an extra hour, uh, that, see, if you like that joke, you're going to love this evening. Uh, come out. It's a way for us just to lighten our spirits heading into the holidays. Also just want to let you know that we're closing out our first Peter series over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Danny Jones, our founding pastor, is actually going to preach next Sunday. And then Shane Cahoot, one of our other pastors here on staff, is going to close the series out on the 19th. And then we're going to head into our Christmas series on Christmas through the Gospels. Uh, Last Sunday I mentioned that Jesus provides the, the pattern, the practice, and the power to live for him as we're looking at First Peter. If you want to turn in your Bible or on your app, I think it's good for us to see these passages with our own eyes today, see what it is that God's Word says. There are some dense sections of today's passage, and I think it would be good for you to be able to see it for yourself. But he provides this pattern, practice, and power that even while suffering, we can live for his glory. He provides that so that uh, we can know how to live for him. And this week we're going to kind of drill into that a little bit more. But even as last week I shared about the idea of evangelism, that is sharing your faith, proclaiming this good news with both our lives and our words, we should recognize that the world is not waking up this morning looking for a good cup of coffee from our lobby. That the world is not waking up this morning and just thinking like, I'd like to go for a free cup of joe and maybe some of Ed's cinnamon rolls. That, that will really set my week off right. Now, we're grateful for the teams that provide those things, but maybe they're not thinking, you know, what would be great after that cup of coffee is, is some good music. Maybe what would be great after that is this kind of motivational or inspirational word. No, today, if people show up, if in the weeks ahead people show up, it's because you, as the people of God, have interacted with them. Have we ever thought about that as a church? Have we ever given time and intentional thought to that? That if people are here today, if people show up in the weeks ahead, if, if we go about our lives proclaiming with our actions, with our words, people are showing up not because of any of the fringe things that are provided in these gatherings. It's because they've interacted with people who once were dead and are now alive. And can I tell you this morning, they're going to want to see and hear and know more about it. And if you're here this morning and and you're wondering more about what it looks like to go from death to life, I can tell you, this is that room where people who were once dead and are now alive are gathered. We are those people. And it is God's Word that instructs us how to live for Him. So if you've been invited here today, or if you're going to be inviting others in the weeks ahead, let's all see and hear and know more about living for the glory of God through the word provided for us. Let's begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18. We're going to end this first section in verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Father, would you give us not just knowledge of your word today, would you instruct our hearts how to glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Peter's coming to a section here that has been debated through the centuries since it's been translated. But his main point here is that because Christ has triumphed, we don't have to fear suffering, darkness, or death. And this is one of the richest, clearest, and most brief New Testament passages that summarizes the work of Christ, where it says this, that he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Have you ever wondered how it is that we might be able to approach God? Well, it is through Jesus. He is the one who brings us into that throne room that we were just rejoicing in. He is the one that, even as those prophetic words were declaring this morning, he is the one, Jesus is the one who allows us to have that kind of access and new identity in him. It's the work of Jesus bringing us to the Father that allows us to have access. It's not anything that we've done. It's not anything that we add. It's not any goodness in us. It's not some talent or ability that we have. It is the work of Christ alone, even as we just sang in worship. My hope is found in that. My strength is found in that. Our joy is found in that as believers. This summary gives us a wonderful picture of our identity as we are united with Christ. He paid the penalty for sins. You know, at the heart of the gospel is this doctrine. It might be known as substitutionary atonement or or a penal atonement. And basically what it is is that Jesus paid our penalty for sins. He was a substitute in my place and in your place. It it, it, It undoes the effects of our sin. It restores us to God. It is Christ Jesus who brings us to God. We might literally define the word atonement as at one meant. We are at one with Christ, atoned through his work, restored to him. It's what we find in this verse. Christ suffered once for sins. That was the penal penalty. The righteous for the unrighteous, that is the substitution that he might bring us to God. It's his atonement. This is where these doctrines are so rooted in Scripture that it's important for us to understand because that doctrine alone gives us this breakthrough into our unity with Christ and our identity in Him. See, because the work of Christ proclaimed the gospel of grace to us that we can respond to, we are restored to God. Any of the wreckage that's been introduced to our lives, any of the things that we bring from our past, any of those moments that we wish that we could forget, they are all atoned for. Sin, failure, error, canceled at the cross. That's good news for us this morning. This is an announcement of the victory of Jesus. It's an announcement of His victory. 
Now, we might wonder, now, these are some confusing verses. How is this an announcement of victory? Well, there are some questions that we have to ask. When we look at a verse that says this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's a difficult, much debated verse. So who, who is it that is, who are these spirits in prison? Could it be that they are the unbelievers who have died? Maybe they're the unbelievers that were living in Noah's day. First Peter talks about Noah here in just a moment. Maybe it's fallen angels or evil spirits or demons. Who is it that, that Christ is speaking to? And what is it that he's proclaiming to them? Is he going to them and saying, hey, you have a second chance at redemption? You can repent because you died in your unbelief. And so maybe this is a second chance. Maybe this is the Old Testament believers and, and Christ is declaring over them their liberation. Maybe these are those fallen angels I mentioned just a moment ago, those who were opposed to the cross, those who were opposed to the gospel. Did Christ announce victory over them and their final condemnation to come in the age to come? And when was it that he proclaimed this? When when did he go there? Is this the pre-incarnate Jesus preaching through Noah? Is this between his death and resurrection? Is this after his death and resurrection? Those are questions that we can wrestle with, kind of answering this who, what, and when. What is happening in this verse when it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? We might actually better understand this as Noah is introduced in Genesis at the end of chapter 5 in the beginning of chapter 6. And what is happening there is that there are these fallen beings from heaven that come down and they, they exacerbate, they take the effects of sin and they begin to spread it throughout the world and this corruption just takes off like a wildfire in the world. That's what's described in Genesis chapter 6. I don't recommend reading that account to your children at bedtime. It's one of those things that there's a lot of confusing language there, but it says that the sons of men have come down, and they, what they were doing was they were having sex with earthly women. And these are those passages that maybe in our devotions we just think, I must have been sleepy when I was reading that passage. I have no idea what that meant. So praise be to God, let me help, help me have a great day because I did my duty and I had devotions and I'm going to go try to live for you based on what I don't understand. Am I the only one that has those kind of moments in devotion where we need to not just read or kind of scratch our head, but we need to dive into the passage a little bit more? I hope not. I hope I'm in good company. Now to be clear, what we're talking about here is what we would call a secondary doctrine. It's one of those things that's not key to the gospel. What's key to the gospel is verse 18, that Christ died as a substitute for me and for you. What's secondary to that is what this passage may mean. It's been much debated by people that we greatly respect. My desire today is to walk gently and humbly through this passage. That should be our desire every day when it comes to Scripture. But especially in this, where there can be much confusion. But I think that there's some ways that Scripture helps us to understand this. Not only does Genesis 6 introduce us to these beings that that 1 Peter, I believe, is talking about, even as he's talking about Noah. He is helping, Genesis chapter 6 helps us to understand these passages. But so does 2 Peter 2, 4, where it says that God did not spare angels when they sinned. But cast them into hell, committed them to chains, and they were being kept there until a final judgment. There is this place of holding for those who had fallen. Jude, verse 6, says this, that the angels who did not stay but left their proper dwelling, the place that was designed for them, are kept in eternal chains until gloomy judgment comes. Again, some of these might be those passages that we're tempted to just gloss over in devotion. 
See, what Peter is pointing to is those who were chosen but scattered believers. He's saying to these chosen and scattered believers that he's writing to in this passage, he's saying what is happening in the days between death and resurrection for Jesus. Have you ever wondered what happened on Holy Saturday? We have a Good Friday service, and then we don't talk a lot about what happens on Saturday. And then on Easter Sunday, we're reveling in his resurrection. And perhaps you've wondered, what's happening on that day? Well, I believe that First Peter gives us a glimpse into what's happening that day. He's saying that Christ went to this place of holding and said, victory. Victory. Now, we've talked about this, that there are aspects of spiritual warfare that are mentioned in 1 Peter. My desire today is not to talk about spiritual warfare in some way that says that you need to reach some higher plane as a Christian in order to be able to engage in spiritual warfare. My hope today is to remind you that in Christ you have victory over those spirits that may torment you. That's what's clear from God's Word. Christ is victorious. So I would actually like to normalize spiritual warfare in the life of the believer. I want it to be something that we're aware of because we walk in the victory that Christ has. If we are united with him, we are united with his victory. And church, I think that's what 1 Peter is drawing our attention to. There's this analogy that is of our salvation if we look at verses 20 and 21. We looked at this analogy of bread last week as we were invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we see throughout Scripture how that provides nourishment for the soul, how it provides filling for us. And in the same way today, we're going to see water used as an analogy. There's this tie to water. It's not a physical cleansing of water on the body in baptism that saves us. It is the appeal and faith for God to cleanse our conscience. You know, I'm often reminded through pastoral counseling, through interaction with people, that a clear and a clean conscience is a gift from God. That's not something we can come up with for ourselves. For those who deal with any type of sin, maybe it be sexual sin, you'll hear this analogy, I could not shower enough to get the memories off of me. And I think that 1 John gives us some wonderful instruction when it says that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is a washing through the work of Christ that happens. And this analogy of water is that we can have this washing of our soul and of our consciences, that it can be clear before him. We are saved by grace received through faith. It's not the result of works. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. But baptism is a tangible sign of the grace of God. It's the grace that brings us through those spiritual perils of life. Just as Noah's family was brought through the water to be saved by God's mercy. The eight of them, Noah, his spouse, his children, their spouses. So baptism, when we celebrate baptism, as we celebrated in the last few weeks, baptism is a picture of death and life immersed as a symbolic gesture of death, and then raised again as a gesture of eternal life. I trust that those who are saved in this room have been baptized. It's a wonderful declaration. It is a witness of the work of God in your heart. Much like marriage, much like communion, these are outward displays of what's happening inside of us. 
Baptism is that same type of a thing. And God delights to give a sign to those who are in his church that put their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is for us. It means a washing away of sin and a purifying of the believers in God. And so when our church baptizes someone, it is a witness to that promise of grace made by the risen Lord. And that's going to come true when faith is present in those moments. So baptism doesn't save, but it illustrates what God does through faith. Now, you may need to be baptized, or you want to talk about baptism some more. We would be honored to do so. There's even a form on our website under the section header called CARE that you can fill out at any time to start that process. But let's remember that baptism itself does not save, as Peter says. Baptism isn't a way that you are brought into the membership of the church. Baptism isn't something that just reminds you of what God did years ago as if you can lose your salvation in that way. Baptism is a sign of assurance. It is a seal of the work of God and the hope and the promises that he's made to you. I was around the age of six when I was baptized. There are moments in my life that I need to remember that Sunday night at Calvary Assembly. In the old sanctuary, that's how I know it anyway. Orange pews everywhere. It was disgusting by today's standards. But the grace of God was there. Have you experienced that for yourself? Do you have that sign of assurance for yourself? Do you know that moment when you declared before others as a seal and a sign of assurance for you? See, our hope is secure. It's not shaky. Our hope is not something that we look at and think, well, I I hope that my hope holds. Because that means that our hope is in something that we can accomplish. But baptism serves as a seal for us that he is the one that has accomplished the work. We also see the ascension of Christ. We see this in verse 2, who has, excuse me, verse 22, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God. What is that? It's talking about his ascension, Jesus' ascension. Now, for the believers in Peter's time, those who had been scattered abroad, they'd been brought into the family of God, and yet they're scattered in in the places that they are in the Roman Empire. The significance of this pledge by God was the knowledge that they were made eternally secure by Christ's work on their behalf. So it's not just that they have baptism, they have his ascension into heaven itself. Faith links you to the power of working of Christ at God's right hand. So if we are united with Christ in this life and we are able to declare that we have victory in, these, in the authority over spirits, we also have an assurance that Christ working at God's hand is effective for us as well. That is great news, church. So no matter the trials, the difficulties, the hostilities, or the oppression that you face in this world, His ascension means something for you today. Now, we might take a step back from these difficult and challenging passages and think, what what does this all point to? What does this all mean for us as the people of God? What is it that Peter would have been after in those that were receiving this? And what is he communicating to us today? Well, if we notice the flow of the text, we start with this, Christ's death. We then see his descent into the place where these spirits are kept We see his resurrection from the dead, and we see his ascension. 
Now, why does that matter? Well, in verse 18, if we understand the atonement that he provides for us through his death, it means that if you have been baptized, if you are a Christian, we can be assured of this, that you don't have to fear suffering because of Christ. What about verse 19 and 20? Well, there's this announcement, there's this analogy of salvation that's given. There's this descent that is happening into this place where the Spirit, the spirits are kept. It reminds us of this, that if you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, you don't have to fear death, darkness, or demons because of Jesus Christ. What about verse 21, where we see His resurrection, and there's this continued analogy of salvation. It means that if you are a Christian and you have been baptized, you don't have to fear final judgment because of Christ. What about verse 22 where we see this ascension? It's a reminder that you don't have to fear anything because of Christ. What what we see here is the comprehensive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, don't fear suffering. Don't fear death or darkness or demons. Don't fear final judgment. Don't fear anything because of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's main point is here. I don't think that Peter was writing this so that he just has this nice, confusing line, and depending on how it's translated in the Latin for the Nicene Creed, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage believers who are often discouraged by the things that are going on around them in the world, who start to question their salvation because they feel like they're not living up to it. Peter wants to write to them, And say, in Christ, remember your baptism, you have nothing to fear. So what does that mean for us today? It means that we can live for the will of God. Let's continue to read together. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But when they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. To suffer for your belief is God's will for us as followers of Jesus Christ. To face opposition for your beliefs, to face a hostility for your beliefs, You know, some time ago I shared that my daughter was using this word wholesome and I felt like she was misapplying it because she said that Robert De Niro was so wholesome. Then I introduced her to some of De Niro's original. I said, hey, let's watch this mob movie. Just a little clip of it, okay? I was like, that doesn't seem very wholesome, does it? And she's like, yeah, but in the intern he's so wholesome. It's hard to argue with, right? It's one of those things that's difficult to overcome, but you know that word wholesome is something that is actually quite introduced into our vernacular today as a, as a culture. Wholesomeness, wholesomeness. It's something that can be said of our schedule. The way that we eat, the way that we sleep, the way that we go about our work, how it is that we relax, what our recreation is. Do you realize that Scripture gives us a truly wholesome, a complete and perfect way of suffering? 
Scripture gives us a wholesome way to go about people being hostile toward us because of our beliefs. It gives us a wholesome way to experience opposition from the world around us. It's a gospel-centered wholesomeness. It's a wholesomeness that says that there is a peace that surpasses the understanding of what I'm walking through. It's a wholesomeness that says I am wholly committed to God because he has wholly committed himself to me. It's a wholesomeness. And it says that to live for the will of God will lead to suffering. And when I'm defining suffering here, I'm talking about those hostilities. That opposition for what you believe, those moments where you have to make a stand for your faith, however large or small, whether it's in your home, on your campus, in your workplace. But it's worth considering for us this morning, even just after hearing this passage, I wonder, are we facing hostilities for our faith? Now, I'm not saying go out there and be a jerk for Jesus. The gospel's offensive enough, it doesn't need you for that. What I'm saying is, does your life look so different than the world around you that you know what I'm talking about when I say hostilities or oppression or uh, sufferings for your faith? Do you look so different than the world around you that on, on occasion there is suffering when you're not invited to that event, when you're not included in others' plans? Let me ask this challenging question. Do you not know what I'm talking about because your life looks so much like the world around you that nobody thinks of your faith? They think as little of your faith as you may be living it. It's a sobering question that we all wrestle with today, myself included. See, suffering for our faith is not the goal, but it is the means by which our faith is made perfect. See, we're called to imitate Christ. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, when we suffer in the flesh, it means this, that we have ceased from sin. It means that there has been this place where we have said, we are not surprised when we are opposed just as Jesus was. It's a reminder to us that we are not tourists on this earth. We're on foreign soil as enemy combatants. This earth is not our home. There's a new heaven and a new earth to come, but while we are here today, we are to imitate Christ. This is something that we should be prepared for. Look at the the text. It says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Earlier in Peter, in uh, 1, 13, it says this, prepare your mind. Remember, we talked about that, girding up your mental loins. 1 Peter 2, 11 says this, to abstain from the things of the world. This is how it is that we are called to be different. It's what it means to focus on the will of God rather than human passions, the things that we can give ourselves so easily to in the world around us. Living for the will of God is not easy, but it is plain according to the Scripture. It means that we don't just go about our day just like everybody else does. So practically, how is it that we go about arming ourselves? What's our devotional life? It's our prayers. It's our time in the Word. It's our time in worship. Read the word, pray, give yourself to the things of the Lord, set your mind for the day on the things that are above. Now, we go on to see this proven nature of our faith. There's this reinforcement of our identity when we abstain from sin because we have been released from sin's domination over us. We see this in Romans. 
So our relationship to sin is different now. It's against this new nature that we have in Christ. It's what we see in verse 1. We don't go about the same way of thinking from the world because we suffer in the flesh, meaning that we have ceased to sin. Those who are willing to suffer for your faith, to face those hostilities and oppressions, show that you're no longer under sin's rule, but you are dedicated to God's will. And notice that Peter doesn't just talk about making better decisions. It's not just saying no to something. It's saying yes to the right things. It's living for something, living for someone. We say no to human passions for the rest of time, this text says. Here's here's the thing. When we get to heaven, we will live the rest of our lives for God's will. What I'm talking about here is not whether or not you should move or take that next job or marry so-and-so. What I'm talking about is living out God's will through prayer, through loving one another earnestly, through hospitality, through using the gifts that God has given us. We're going to see more about that in the weeks ahead. But you so these make up this what we are called to live for in terms of the will of God. It's a positive thing for us. It's not just saying no. It's saying yes to the right things. So what motivates us in living this way? Well, we understand our past rightly. Look at verse 3 with me. It says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You ever been in the grocery store and, or in Walmart or Target and you hear a parent say to a child, Enough already? And then you just think, I'm just going to follow this family around. This looks like fun to me. Maybe you're that family. I know I've said that before. Enough already. This is Peter's loving admonishment to the church. Enough already. Enough of living sensually. Giving into your passions for drunkenness, orgies, parties, lawless idolatry. In other words, choose today to live for the glory of God. Perhaps you're here today and you you, you say, I'm wavering because I have so much I want to accomplish in my life. Let me ask you a question. Without Christ, what is it that you're actually seeking to do with the time that you're not dedicating to him? Is it where you're saying, look, I've got some sinning left to do. Let me just sow my wild oats. Let me just get that out of my system. Let me just see what the world is about. Let me just try it and then I'll come back to God. Can I remind you of this? None of us are promised tomorrow. Every one of us has promised eternity. Enough already. Enough. It means that we don't need more time for rebellion. It means that we don't need to experience everything that we've been saved for. It means that we need saving from our own hearts, not just some accumulation of things that we've done. We need saving from ourselves. But perhaps this list begins to help us understand sins that are just so normalized in the world around us. I mean, the world wants to normalize sin. It helps us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? When we normalize things that we give ourselves to. And we need to be aware of something as believers. When when we don't affirm sin, when we don't participate in sin, when we even speak out against sin, we will endure sin. Opposition. That's what First Peter is leading us to see. We need to be motivated 
from an enough already, already mentality so that we don't normalize sin in the culture that we live in today. There's a motivation not only from our past, but there's a, a motivation for us in the present as well. Look at verse 4. It says this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. We don't have to go along with what the world is doing around us, but let's also not be surprised when First Peter finishes that verse and he says, and they malign you. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Don't be surprised when they don't understand what it is that you're living for, when they mock you and they make fun of you. People may think that you're weird for the pursuit of godliness, but does it matter to you more what people think of you or what God says about who you are in Christ? This is what motivates us in the present. Perhaps the people around you are seeking what we might call a verse three kind of life. They're giving themselves to everything. What does it look like for you to live differently than the world around you? There can come moments where those who once mocked you will turn to you in their moments of need. Their moments of pain or failing. And in those moments, what a gift from God that you get to be light in the midst of darkness of life. Sometimes godliness will repel people altogether. Other times it attracts them. Sometimes it does both at different times, depending on what's going on in life. We don't need to give ourselves to those as our hope. How someone responds. Every day, we remind ourselves that we are dead to sin, those who are in Christ. What about future? What, what about a future motivation for this? We see this in verses 5 and 6. They will give an account, so will you. We will give an account one day to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 5 is a warning to those who don't believe. And this warning is not meant to tell you, go to hell. This warning is meant to woo you with the kindness and mercy of a Savior who is ready to receive you as his own. See, there's only one way to stand before the Father. Verse 6 says, to those who believe... Take heart. Take heart even now as you may be facing hostility, oppression, or suffering. Take heart now because what you face now is not your eternity. What you face now is not your eternity. Perhaps today what we might take away from this passage is to see that it's a word of comfort. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And we realize that death does not have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word for those who are in Christ. For those of us with unbelievers in our lives, what this reminds us is that there is an urgency in our living out and sharing of our faith. But this, there's also a word of challenge here as well. To those who have no urgency either to believe or share the gospel. Romans chapter 10. I just want to close with this today as we prepare to go back into worship. I just want to close with this. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11 give us a very clear way it is that we might receive this gift. There is a way to be saved, to believe in your heart and be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Church, let's stand together and worship our Savior.